Please take your Bibles now and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. I have so enjoyed the opportunity to get to interact with a number of you uh, throughout the week so far, whether we've uh, crossed paths on the sidewalk or whether we've had an opportunity to eat together. Uh, I've certainly enjoyed the interaction and I'm looking forward to a couple more days of that. But even more than the interaction, I want you to know that I have appreciated your effort in listening to God's word this week. Uh, You have been easy to preach to and you have been receptive And so I give God thanks for that, and I thank you as well. And tonight we come to Hebrews 12, and I've got to tell you, do you know how kind of awkward and difficult it is to sit there while Dad tells stories about me? I mean, it's bad enough that these stories are being told, but even worse than that, I've got to sit in front of you all uh, while Dad tells me this, and I'd be lying to you if I said that the thought of one of those uh, shepherd's crooks uh, you know, didn't come across my mind, pull this guy away uh, before he tells um, any more stories. So he requested a Benin story, and I was looking through my notes, and Dad, I actually think I can get that into the sermon tonight. So uh, thanks for the illustration idea. I appreciate that. Um, Hebrews chapter 12, as you're turning there, let me ask you this question. What do Abraham and Moses have in common with Jesse Owens and Allison Felix? What do David and Samuel have in common with Usain Bolt or Molly Seidel? What do Abel and Gideon have in common with Carl Lewis or Joan Benoit? It's really pretty simple. They're all runners. Now, some of them were runners in a very literal sense, but others were runners in a very important metaphorical sense. That is, some of these people ran with their eyes on an earthly finish line and they gained a temporary prize while others pressed on towards a different sort of finish line in pursuit of a city that was not made with hands, one that's eternal in the heavens. Some of these pushed their legs and they stretched their lungs and they ran until raw exertion was transformed into prizes in the here and now But others ran towards the promises of God that would not be fulfilled until the future. Friends, throughout the entire New Testament, a life of faith, a life that lives based on the not yet fulfilled promises of God, this sort of life is often compared to a race. Consider just Paul's writings. I don't believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, but consider Paul's writings. Philippians chapter 3. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He's speaking about running. He tells the Galatians, he said, you did run well or you are running well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, rather famously, he says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. The man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we do it for an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. And he continues. He also says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the end of his life, he said, I fought a good fight. I have finished my course. In other words, I finished my race. I've kept the faith. I wonder, students, do you ever think of your life as a race. I wonder, do you ever think of yourself 
as a runner? Who would say, Dave, I actually am a runner? Lift your hand this, this evening if you are a runner. Okay, for tonight's purposes, we're all runners. Okay, this is the metaphor that I'm inviting you into. I want to invite you to enter into this analogy with me as we consider one of the most famous passages in the entire Bible that depicts every single Christian as a runner. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 12 now, verses 1 and 2. The word of God says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. I want to admit at the outset tonight that our sermon this evening is going to be perhaps a little bit lighter on teaching and it's going to be a bit heavier on admonition and encouragement. And so I want to invite you to consider with me three action items from this passage. That is three things that Christians, we must do. Three action items for the race. And let's get right to them this evening. Number one, I want to challenge you, embrace your race. Embrace your race. The text says, let us run with patience or with endurance the race that is set before us. Notice that language in verse 1, the race that is set. The implication is that somebody else is setting a race before us. I'm not choosing to run. Somebody else is dropping me into the middle of a race, and I'm not even choosing my own specific race. Someone else is choosing for me what course I will run. And friends, that someone, that someone who maps our courses and drops us into a race is none other than the God of the universe. He sets our race before us. We read this morning, we'll read it again, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, I am God and there is no one else. I am God and there is none like me. How so? Well, he declares the end from the beginning. And he declares from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand and I will do all of my good pleasure. I believe that is why some of our Baptist forefathers put this in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, that God hath decreed himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever come to pass. This God has has determined your race. My dad asked me to tell the story of my return trip to Benin, West Africa. I need to tell you just a little context for this story. Uh, As we were going about our normal lives, my wife and I will be in the Milwaukee area, and I will say to my wife, we were in an old Navy one time, and I said to her, I said, that guy over there is from West Africa. And she's like, how do you know? I'm like, well, I've been there. I just know. I recognize him. And she's like, you you, you just don't don't go over there and ask him. That, That, just don't do it. Not a good idea. Going up to someone, asking them, are you from Africa? And I'm like, no, it's really okay. And so I went up to him, and I said, are you from Benin, West Africa? And he said, I am. And it was like I was his instant cousin. The guy almost hugged me. And um, so I have this history of going up to people and asking them if they're from Africa. It's just maybe not uh, to be, um, I don't necessarily recommend this, but I do it. (laughs) 
And so we're on our way to Benin, West Africa. We're on a subway train heading back to the airport in Paris, France. And we're sitting on this subway, and we're about to get to the airport and go to Benin. And I look at my wife, and I say, that guy sitting over there in our subway train, he's from West Africa. And she goes, oh, no, here we go again. (laughs) And so I go over to him, and I said, excuse me, where are you from? Are you from West Africa? And he said, yes, I am from Benin. And I said, seriously, we're about to get on a plane and go to Benin, and I've been there before. And he said, no way, you're going to Benin. He was so excited, very animated, big guy. Yaovi was his name. And he said, oh, where in Benin are you going? And I said, to Cotonou. And he said, oh, I am from Cotonou. And he said, where in Cotonou are you going? And I said, well, we're going to Fidrose. And he said, well, that's my hometown. I am from Fidrose. And he started writing down his phone number and his email. And he said, when you, when you get there, I'll be there in a week. I want you to look me up, and I want to make connections with you. And it was just this great interaction, and we left. And we got on the airplane, and we were so excited, and we got to the missionary, and we said, we met this man in Paris, France, that says he lives in your neighborhood. Now, the missionary's been in Benin for quite some time, and I told him the story, and he looked at me, and he said, so Dave, um, who said Benin first, you or him? And I'm like, ah, I don't remember. He said, uh, who said Kutenu first, you or him? And I said, well, I did. He said, how about Fidrose? Who said that first, you or him? And I said, well, I did. And he said, Dave, you're you're being conned. You're being conned. The the man is being agreeable because he wants to angle at you. And I was like, really? I was so deflated. My pride was hurt. I was thinking, you know, I've been around the block a couple times too. I I was conned. Anyway, I, I sort of let it drop. It was rainy season in Benin. One day, maybe a week later, we were trying to get across the town to the the local church there in Fidrose. And because the the roads are dirt and they're very narrow, when it rains, they get flooded out. And so you may not be able to take your normal route to church. And so we're in the missionary's SUV and we're going down one road and kind of backing out and then looking for another route and then realizing we're going to get stuck and then backing out. And in one of these moments when we were backing out to find a new route, I heard this loud, bellowing voice from a hut next to the road, and it said, David! (laughs) And Yaovi came waddling out, and he pounded on the window, David! It was sweet vindication. (laughs) And you know, I tell that story because... I couldn't tell you off the top of my head how many millions of people are in Paris. I know there's a million people in Kootenai, West Africa. And we know a God who so orchestrates steps that he allows people's lives to intersect in ways that bend our mind and stretch our imagination. It's like in Acts chapter 17 where he determines the times before appointed and the boundaries of our dwelling place. You see, the doctrine that we have just talked about, how God is in control of every detail of our life, this means that there is no detail in your life that could ever possibly fall outside of our sovereign God's plan. This means that from the spider that's sneaking in your dorm room to the cancer that's hiding in your bones, 
to the specific person who bags your groceries at the grocery store, to the very special person that you will marry one day, nothing, no event, no detail, no interaction, no trial, no matter how seemingly great or seemingly small, nothing in your life falls outside of the control and plan of our God. And because this is true, he sets your race before you. And he sets my race before me. In keeping with the metaphor of the passage, think with me of the many different sorts of races that people run today, or that they have run. The ancient Greeks ran many different sorts of races. They had the super prestigious 180-meter sprint. They had the nighttime torch relay. They even had races that occurred in full military armor as part of military training. In modern times, we have community 5K runs. We have the Tough Mudder. We have the Spartan Obstacle Race. We have full marathons. We even have ultra marathons. In fact, I love to watch the YouTube videos of the Dragon's Back Race in the UK, Wales specifically. It's this multi-day event in which runners push push for five straight days of 30-mile mountain runs every day. I think of the Moab 240, which is literally a 240-mile running race across the desert. I think of the Barkley Marathon, which is only 100 miles, but it includes 54,000 feet of elevation change over those 100 miles. There's all sorts of different races. And friends, if we got to choose our own race, we would probably all choose the shortest, easiest smoothest, most comfortable race, as it were. You see, we have this natural instinct to reject adversity. We have this natural instinct to push away suffering. But the passage uses a running race as a metaphor for our lives, and it tells us that it is God who puts a race before us. You see, we're all heading the same direction towards a heavenly city, as it were, but we're all taking different routes, and we're, we're going running different paces, and we're facing very different obstacles. Consider the people of faith. Consider them as all the other runners in Hebrews chapter 11. Consider their races. Hebrews 11, verse 32. What more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also and Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, Quench the violence of fire. Escape the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong. They waxed valiant in fight. They turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women's, women received their dead, raised to life again. You see, some people of faith run a race that looks like victory and triumph and winning. They ran a race that allowed them to see in the here and now the vindication of their faith as God worked in these obvious and miraculous ways right before their eyes. But there's another group of people and they live by the same faith and the same God. They live by the same faith and the same promises and their race looked entirely different. Consider the next portion of Hebrews 11. And others were tortured 
not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had a trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. You see, these other people of faith were just as faithful. But they ran the race that God had given specifically to them, and that specific race looked less like winning and more like wandering. It looked less like leading triumph and more like enduring torture. It looked less like victory and more like being the victim of unjust execution. You see, their faith was the same and their God was the same, but their races, their their lives were just so different. And so Christian friends, understand that God has a race for you to run and God has a race for me to run and your race is going to look different than someone else's race. That's God's decision and we would do well to come to terms with his good plan for our lives. Embrace your race. I don't know what trials you went through over Christmas break with your family. I don't know what difficulties you left back at home. I don't know what physical difficulties you are going to face this semester. I don't know what relational strain you are under. But I do know this, that the details of your life are not an accident and they are part of the race that God wants you to run. And the first step here in Hebrews chapter 12 is to embrace your race. And so what is our race? I'm going to ask you to personalize this tonight. What is running my race? Running my race is embracing every circumstance that God places before me. As I believe God and obey God until I die or until Jesus returns. Let's say that one more time. Running my race is embracing every circumstance that God places before me. As I believe and obey God until I die or until Jesus returns. Christian, that's your race. Don't try to run my race. Don't try to run anyone else's race. Embrace your race. But there's a second action item in the text, and let's get right to it. Number two, run with endurance. So you're embracing your race, and now you're going to run it with endurance. Look with me again at our text. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience or endurance the race that is set before us. Have you ever noticed how people love to post their pictures of their vacations and their special dinners on their social media. I mean, how do we get into this thing where it's cool to take pictures of our food, right? But we do. And so when a person posts a picture of this massive T-bone steak, you don't see comments on Instagram that say, Bravo! I bet that took a lot of endurance to finish. Man, we're going we're gonna to give you an award. Or when people post a picture of their their ceviche, their reclining little toes with an infinity pool and palm trees in the background and you see the ocean beyond it and it's obvious they're on a Caribbean vacation, we don't typically say to them, 
Oh, I sure hope, brother, you have enough endurance to get through this great, great trial. You see, we don't, we don't say things like that with endurance. Because endurance isn't something that we need to get through a posh vacation or a fancy dinner. Endurance is what we need to get through something that is crushing. Something that is long, grueling, challenging, difficult, painful. Endurance in verse 1 is a Greek word which means the capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty. And so endurance is what we need when we're suffering or hurting, and yet we cannot quit. We have to keep going. Notice also this word for race. It's a curious one in the original language. Notice how Paul uses this same word in his letters and how it's translated in those places. And so each case, I've underlined the same word for race back in Hebrews chapter 12. Here's how Paul uses the same word. Philippians 1 verse 30. He says, having the same conflict which ye saw in me and now here to be in me. Conflict is the same word for race. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God in the midst of much contention or in the midst of much conflict. Conflict is the word for race. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, I would that you knew what great struggle or conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea. You see, the same word for race in Hebrews chapter 12 can be translated conflict or struggle. And so if Paul hadn't used the word run, Right before this word for race, we might think that we should envision ourselves in a wrestling match or in a fight. But he says run. And in combining these words, we see that the race that is set before each of us will be a little bit more like the Moab 240 miler and a little bit less like the community Thanksgiving turkey trot. You see, it's more like the Boston Marathon in Milwaukee. and it, I mean, It's more like the Boston Marathon. It's less like Milwaukee's pathetic beer mile. The race is going to be an unusual test of endurance. And in order to get through this great test of endurance, we're going to need to think very carefully about our wardrobe choices. Look at the text again. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, what do we need to do to run with endurance? Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Lay aside the weight and the sin. Now, when I run, I want to be as unencumbered as possible and as appropriate. I don't like to have to carry anything. I don't want a cell phone in my hand. I don't want a water bottle sloshing around with every stride. You see, the most serious runners, they care even about the weight of their shoes down to the ounce. They try to wear lightweight clothing, and that's why they wear those embarrassing shorts that everyone makes fun of them for, right? You, you see, it, it's one thing to train with ankle weights or a sprinter's parachute or a weight sled, but you shouldn't race with these on because not only are these going to slow you down, but they're going to rob you of the energy that you need. And that's probably why the ancient Greek Olympic athletes took this to the very extreme and they competed without any encumbrances at all, including, including their clothes. And so the author of Hebrews is saying something similar. Paul is drawing upon the sport of running. And he says, I'm sorry, I already said it wasn't Paul, didn't I? The author of Hebrews is drawing on the sport of running. 
And he says, if you want to run the race of the Christian life, if you want to do so with endurance, then you need to lay aside all unnecessary weights. Well, what are these weights that can slow us down in the Christian race? Our English translation treats every weight and the sin which clings so closely as two separate items. And it almost seems like in our English translation that we need to cast off both sins and weights as though they're two separate things. However, I think we should see weights as part of the running metaphor. The race refers to the very life that God has set before us, and the weights that we need to shed then are part of the metaphor as well. They correspond to the sins that will slow us down. And so please understand that this verse could be translated in this way. It could be translated, let us lay aside every weight, even sin which clings so closely. In other words, the weights that hold us back in our lives, these are the sins that we commit and the sins that we are prone to committing. You see, they're described as clinging so closely or as always surrounding us. In other words, sin is never more than a step away. It lingers closely and it grabs us and it latches hold of us so often. Remember, believers, we have been saved from sin's penalty and we have been saved from sin's power and we are not yet saved from sin's presence. You see, we still have sinful desires and we're still surrounded by constant temptation. And so the author of Hebrews is telling us that if we want to run our races with endurance, we need to throw off the weight of sin. When he says lay aside, he's actually using a word for disrobing. Paul makes a similar point using similar language in Colossians 3. If the author of Hebrews has been saying, put off heavy sins so you can run, then Paul is saying, put off dangerous sins so you can walk. He says this in Colossians 3, verses 5 through 9. He says, put to death or mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. And he starts listing the sins that need to be, that need to be killed and put off in our lives. Fornication, uncleanness, Inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, and the which ye also walked some time when you lived in them, but now ye also put off all of these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. Christian friends, if this race is going to be hard and grueling, so much so that we need great endurance to run it, then we need to get rid of any sin in our lives that may keep us from running well. I mean, I want you to think about this positively for a moment. What could your race look like if you weren't wearing the weight of craving human approval and praise? What could your race look like if you weren't weighed down by unforgiveness and bitterness against God and others, or a deep discontentment with your circumstances? What strides could you make in your race for Christ and for ministry to Him if you weren't weighed down by lust and pornography? What would your running stride look like this week if you weren't impaired by some relationship to substance that consumes your thoughts and your life, and so far you've been able to hide it from those closest to you, but it is dominating your life. 
What could your race look like if you wasted less of your God-given time on triviality and instead viewed your time as a resource to be stewarded by God? What could your race look like if you got honest tonight and admitted that success and money have become gods that you are serving? How fast could we run if we would take off the weights? How much could be accomplished for Christ more than, is already be more than is already being accomplished in this room if we took off the weights? You see, each of these things will keep us from running with endurance. And so this text calls us to embrace our race, to run with endurance. And then notice, number three, this text calls us to run with focus. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, since verse 1 begins with wherefore or therefore, we know that whatever the author is about to say to us is based upon and is slightly linked to whatever it is that he's already said in the previous chapter. And so back in chapter 11, we were introduced to people that are often called the heroes of the faith or the hall of faith. And each of these people really just had one thing in common. They lived their lives with confidence in the promises of God even though they had never seen this God, nor had all of his promises been fulfilled in their lifetimes. And so Hebrews 11 tells us about many people of faith, runners we've called them, people like Noah, who had never seen rain or God's judgment, but yet labored for years to build an ark that saved his family and himself. Abraham, who didn't know where God was going to lead him, but left his hometown in search of the city that God would build. Sarah, who ultimately trusted God to provide a child, even though she was past the age of childbearing. These people each died believing the not yet fulfilled promises of God. Joseph died in Egypt, but he believed that one day God would bring his bones out of Egypt. Verse 22. Moses looked forward to a future reward, and so he aligned with God's people during his life instead of enjoying momentary pleasure as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He feared God more than Pharaoh as someone who could seemingly see the invisible. And the chapter provides even more examples of people that believed God and his promises and they lived like they believed him even though they couldn't see him and they couldn't see everything that his word had promised them. Now in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1, these same people of faith called the great cloud of witnesses. And in the running metaphor, the lives of these people, that is the people who have already run their lives by faith, their lives are testifying or their lives are witnessing to us. And they are bearing witness to the truth that God can be trusted. They are bearing witness to the truth that living by faith is worth it. In fact, it's almost like they're seated in the stadium as we run. And it's not that they're cheering us on from heaven. That's probably not what this means. But what it means is that as we run, their very lives are a testimony to us. They, being dead, still speak. And they witness to us of a life of faith and a run of endurance. And their lives say to us, run, keep going. 
I know it's hard, but trust God. He will never fail you. He will never disappoint you. His promises are true. And so when Hebrews 12:1 says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with patience or endurance the race that is set before us, the author is basically saying this. Considering the lives of those who have already run their races by faith and listening to their testimonies of faith, you must also run with endurance the race that is set before you. Like theirs, our focus is on God and his promises. Like theirs, our focus is a faith focus. However, there are differences. Their faith looked backward to the promises that God had already fulfilled in their time, and it also looked forward to the future coming of Christ. Our faith looks backward to the Christ who already came to die and rise. And our faith likewise looks forward to all that God will accomplish in the future when the Lord Jesus returns. And so verse 2 tells us to run with a focus, with eyes of faith on Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the text says. As we run, we look to Jesus as our Savior, but also as our example of a runner. In verse 2, Jesus is called the author and finisher of our faith or the founder and perfecter of our faith. In other words, we wouldn't be running and we certainly wouldn't be finishing if it weren't for Jesus. If it weren't for Jesus, there would be no Christianity. There would be no Christian life. There would be no eternal life if it weren't for the fact that he embraced his race and he ran it perfectly. We read in Hebrews, we read in Hebrews chapter 2, for it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make or demonstrate the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Jesus then lived a perfect life. He endured hardship. He ultimately suffered the death of a crucifixion in order to provide for our salvation. And for those who have trusted in him, he's not just the founder of our faith, he's the finisher or the completer. Consider how the book of Hebrews describes the work of Christ on the cross as sufficient and permanent for everyone who believes. But Christ being come and a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For by one offering, He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. That's us believers. And so as we run our races, this is the Jesus that we look to. We look to the one who is both founder and finisher of our faith. He had to finish his race in order to get us into ours. He lived a perfect life and he made a perfect sacrifice in order to perfect forever those who love him. And he has made it possible then for us to run. And he alone will keep us in our races, but we must look to him. And so not only is Jesus our savior, but he is our example for running the race. Notice how he ran his race in verse two. Text says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We've just been told that we need to run our race with endurance because it's going to be hard. But consider Jesus' race. He also needed endurance. 
What did Jesus have to endure as he ran his race? There was one incredible obstacle in his race. The cross. Go with me in your minds to the cross. His own people had rejected him. He was denied three times by his own dear friend for a price of cold hard cash. Another betrayed him into the hands of wicked men. He was mocked and scorned. His beaten beyond recognition, he was clothed with a purple robe of mockery, with spit and blood trickling down his face, blood from the thorns that were smashed into his skull, and spit from the mouths of mocking sinners who ironically owed their very existence to him. Upon reaching that dreadful hill, the soldiers took nails and pounded them through his flesh, attaching his wrists and his feet to that Roman cross. And as they lifted that cross and dropped it into a dugout hole, his bones were jarred from their joints. And as he hung upon that cross, he didn't just suffer physically and die, but in his death, he also faced God's judgment. That is, God's wrath for our sins. You see, in his cross, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He's the wrath-absorbing sacrifice. And so one theologian describes it like this. To bear the guilt of millions of sins, even for a moment, would cause the greatest anguish of soul. To face the deep and furious wrath of an infinite God for even an instant would cause the most profound fear. But Jesus' suffering was not over in a minute or two or ten. So why would Jesus endure this? I'm going to think about that question for a moment. Back in September, I did something that I had almost had vowed I would never do. I ran my first full marathon. I've run 13 miles many times, but this was the first time I've gone for the full 26.2. And it was absolutely brutal. I mean, it hurt so much to walk the next two days. Honestly, as we were leading up to this race, I truly was not sure I could even finish it. But I was sure of one thing. That if I was going to finish, I was going to have to suffer a lot. You see, I just didn't expect the pain to come so soon in the race. I didn't expect the pain to come with 9 or 10 miles left in the race. And so with 9 or 10 miles still in front of me and the pain setting in and running out of gas, I started thinking of Bible verses. I started focusing on the words of the music. I started praying for some really important prayer requests. And along the way at this rural race, Emily and the kids would drive the minivan around and they would find me on country roads and they would cheer for me and they would give me water or snacks and it was a big pickup. But with all of the kids' chatter about this race over the few weeks leading up to the event, I knew that my kids were going to be at the finish line to greet me with cheering and hugs and celebration. In fact, they would probably act like I had just won the Olympics, right? And it was the vision of my kids at the finish line. It was that experience or that expectation of future joy that pushed me to keep running, even though everything in me was shouting, Marriott, just give up already. And when the kids would pull up next to me, I knew I could just get in the van and all the pain would be over. It could all be over this quick. 
But the thought of the joy at the finish line kept me in the race, and it was so ugly and not the time I wanted, but I finished. And so what made Jesus run his race? What could possibly have motivated Jesus to endure the unspeakable suffering that he endured? In fact, what could make, of Jesus, what could make Jesus finish the race in such a way that he despised the shame? In other words, he looked at his humiliation and he said, that's really nothing to me. What could make the humiliation of the Son seem like nothing? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Friends, we each have a race set before us. Jesus had a race with joy at the end set before him. And his joy was to be found in pleasing the Father and finishing the work that the Father gave him to do. His joy was the eventual enthronement at the Father's right hand. And yet, part of the joy on the other side of his suffering Part of the joy that was set before Jesus was us. You see, in the Old Testament, God rejoices over his people with singing. In the New Testament, there is joy in heaven when a sinner repents. And Jesus suffered the cross for the joy of bringing many sons to glory. He suffered the cross for the joy of redeeming his people and making an atonement for their sins. And so it was the thought of his father, it was the thought of his throne, and it was the thought of his brothers being saved that moved Jesus to run his race all the way through the cross because there was a joy set before him. Well, friends, there's something similar true with us in our race. There is a joy set before us in our race, too. There is the joy of eventually seeing Christ face to face in the future at the finish line. There is the joy of heaven that lies before us and the joy of the new creation. There is the joy of one day seeing people that we led to the Lord or people that are now in heaven because of ministry that we had the privilege of being involved in or supporting financially. There's the joy of the future kingdom of God, the new creation. There's so much joy in front of us. And because there's massive joy in our future, we can keep running with endurance in the present time. For Christ, it was suffering the cross before taking his heavenly throne. And for us, it's bearing the cross before earning a heavenly crown. And so we must run with a focus, a faith focus, anticipating that God will keep all of his promises both now and in the future, even though in the moment it requires endurance. Ultimately, we must run with our focus on Christ, the one who ran his race perfectly all the way to the cross to please his Father and to save us and to chart a pathway for us then to follow as we run our races. As we close this evening, I want to ask you to consider some of the factors that make a race so difficult. You see, in a physical race, a number of things can cause a runner to want to quit. I was so completely devastated in my marathon when I stopped at an aid station only to find out they ran out of water. There were 18 people in your marathon. How did you run out of water? I was not a happy camper. Many times runners face cramps and blisters and chafing and side stitches and we'll just call it stomach distress 
and dehydration and injury and rain or snow or unexpected hills. And so in keeping with the analogy, what makes, what makes the race that is the Christian life so hard? Why do we need this endurance? Well, the passage lists several items, and we can only look at them very briefly. The details of every race is different, but there are some commonalities as well. What makes the race hard? Well, number one, you can be sure that your race will include persecution. Romans chapter, or Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. For consider him, where we're considering Christ, the example of one who ran his race, consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. You see, this verse presents the very real possibility of faint-heartedness. That's when your legs give out from under you from sheer exhaustion. The faint-hearted are about to quit running the race, and it seems as though their faint-heartedness, in verse 3, is caused by the hostility of sinners. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means what Paul means in 2 Timothy chapter 3, when he says, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It means that the world hates Christ, and since he's no longer physically present, guess where they aim that hatred instead? They aim it at his body which is on this earth, which is us. And even though it's light persecution right now in our context, and it is, one man said that most of the world fears the raised fist and we simply fear the raised eyebrow. It's light persecution right now in our context, but still it can get old to face mockery and social exclusion. It can get old to be called a hater because you believe every word of the Bible. It can get old to be rejected by potential employers and, and ostracized by friends and, and, and intense relationships with your family because of Jesus. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you think the hostility you're facing is strong? Consider Christ. You see, we may think we're doing something wrong when we face opposition, but consider the hostility that Jesus faced as the crowds cried out, crucify him. You see, you are running a race in his steps. You're bearing your cross as you follow a crucified Savior. And when you face persecution, remember that this is part of the race that God has set before you. It's part of your calling as a Christian because our Savior said, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets which were before you. And so... Students, when we face opposition for following Christ, the enemy wants to use that to take us out of the race. But this passage is saying, consider Christ. Consider the hostility that he endured and continue running. Your race will not only include persecution, but your race will include a struggle against sin. The author says, Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Or we could phrase it this way. In your struggle with sin, you've not yet resisted so long that it required the shedding of your own blood. Maybe you're tempted to quit running this evening because the struggle with sin is so hard. Because temptation is so unrelenting and constant and often discouraging. You just frankly wish you weren't bombarded with so much temptation and that you didn't find such willingness in your own soul to go along with it. 
Again, the author of Hebrews points us to the concept of shedding our blood. His words point us back to Hebrews 11, where individuals were cut into two pieces for their faith. And his words point us ultimately to Jesus, who shed his blood on the cross. And the point is this. Jesus' obedience to the Father and his disavowal of sin led him all the way to the cross where he shed his blood. He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so the author of Hebrews is asking us this question, has your obedience to God required that kind of sacrifice yet? The answer is no. Did your battle with sin take you that far yet? And the answer is no. This is tough love in the Bible. Compare your struggle with sin to Jesus shedding his blood on the cross. And until your struggle against sin requires your suffering unto death, you better not give up. A friend of mine puts it this way. Compared to what Jesus suffered, we don't even need a band-aid. Number three, your race will include God's loving discipline. That's why it's hard. So the race is hard because of persecution. The race is hard because of this constant struggle against sin that's just unrelenting. And then the race is hard because it's going to include God's loving discipline. Verse 5, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? Verse 10. But he chastens us for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Friends, in Christ, some adversity that we face in our race can be placed in the category of trials. These are part of God's overall program for making us his well-disciplined and mature children. But also within God's overall program for our discipline, sometimes he lovingly reproves and chastens his children. That is, God directly responds to our sin. He says, I'm not going to let you do this anymore because it's not good for you. He says, I'm not going to let you live like this anymore because it's going to destroy you. And so maybe he takes something from us, like a relationship, an idol that we love, our joy for living, a possession, or maybe he gives something to you, like a sickness. I'm not saying that all sicknesses or losses are God's discipline for sin, but sometimes they are. You see, if God is chastening you, you will know what it's for. He's been pointing it out in your life over and over again, and now he's trying to get your attention. And so in order to keep running, friends, we need to respond well to these chastening moments in our lives. The text says that God chastens for our good and that he's motivated by love in order to produce godliness in us, but being chastened by God is not fun. And that's one of the reasons that the race is so difficult. And so what must we do? Some of you are feeling beat up in the race even today. You're about to throw your hands up and say, this is just too difficult. Following Christ, Dave, I'm the only Christian in my family. I bet you didn't know that. Dave, I I don't even know how I'm going to pay for this semester, and I'm here, and I'm about to give up. 
You don't understand the, the, the darkness of, uh, of even some d- depression-like feelings that I have right now, and I just want to give up in the race. You want to quit, perhaps, because God is disciplining you. Perhaps you want to quit because the struggle with sin will just never end. Perhaps you want to quit because you're sick of this world's opposition. And so look at verse 12, and this is where it lands. The author of Hebrews says, Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Strengthen those weak knees. Tonight, afresh, we all need to look to Jesus and consider him. Remember the race that he ran, and then we can continue running our races. Let us pray. Our Father, It is beyond the possibility of my knowledge to know what every student in this room is facing, but I know it is the same sort of stuff that every human faces as they run their race. Father, I pray that there would be an embrace of the providential circumstances of life that you order in every one of us. I pray that there would be a determination to run with endurance, that there would be a decision tonight to lay aside a weight that is holding someone back from a life of service and pleasing, uh, a life of service that is pleasing to you. Pray that there would be one who maybe is, is discouraged in the race and they just need an admonition to look unto Jesus and his race. Maybe someone's being disciplined by, by you because of sin and they need to, t- to turn from that sin and return to you. God, I don't know how you're working in the lives of your children tonight, but if your word has been read, if it has been presented in a way that is faithful. I trust that your spirit is working. And so now may your people say yes to that work in their lives. I want to give you just a moment of of, of quiet reflection. Is there one here tonight who would say, Dave, I'm struggling with embracing my race. I'm pushing against the providential circumstances that God has placed in my life. And today I need to just embrace that race. If that's you, would you just lift your hand? I need to embrace my race. Yes, I see your hands. Who would say, Dave, I'm just, I'm struggling with laying aside weights and the Holy Spirit is convicting me about a specific sin weight that I need to lay aside because it is holding me back from a life of ministry. It's holding me back from spiritual maturity. And I know that this weight needs to be cast off now during my university years so that I can serve the Lord unencumbered. Dave, God is working in my life about a weight and about running with endurance. If that's you, would you just lift your hand? God is working in my life. I want to say yes to him. Yes, a number of people. would say, Dave, I'm just discouraged in this race and I want to give up. And tonight, I need a fresh look to Jesus. I need that faith to be strengthened as I look at Christ. If that's you tonight, would you lift your hand? How is God working in your lives? I believe he's working in so many different ways in the lives of the students tonight. And so young people, let's do this all together. Let's just take the next two minutes. Just bow your head in prayer silently or put your arm around the person next to you and and pray with them. Maybe you'll want to share with someone next to you quietly, but let's take about the next two minutes I'm just going to stand here as the pianist plays a couple stanzas and I want to give you an opportunity to just uh, spend some time in prayer and say, God, you've spoken to me. You've convicted me. You've challenged me. I don't want to leave without saying yes to what you've done. 
take a few moments in, in prayer.